This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. We've got a lot of stuff going on. Europe continues, at least parts of Europe, pushing back on that AstraZeneca vaccine. You've got Italy, that country facing a new lockdown one year after the pandemic started. And then President Biden last night uh, putting out the 4th of July as maybe a moment where we can kind of get, quote unquote, back to normal, as long as you keep it in small groups. Yeah, and I watched that last night too, Carol. And yeah. one thing that really stuck out to me was the eligibility of people who were able to, are able to get vaccines. Biden administration pushing for everyone, every adult, uh, by May 1st. Right, and I understand the prioritizing early on, and I think at this point people are like, it's so confusing, can I go, can I not, and just like kind of opening it up. Let's get into it with uh, one of our go-to voices, really when we always get a, a true gut check, Dr. Ian Lasbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone. He is on the phone in New York City. How are you? Hey, they're doing very well. Happy Friday, guys. And thank you for all your efforts over the past year with, uh, you know, sticking with the story and encouraging people and putting out good, good information. So uh, mm. strong work. Well, likewise to you as well. I really do mean it when I say when you come on, you know, we've thrown so much at you and you just kind of you often ahead of the curve in terms of things that are going to be in the headlines next week and just really giving us again, just like you said to us, really smart information. So Okay, so one year. First of all, take me back one year, Ian. Like, do you remember it like it was yesterday? I do remember it, and I think we uh, we we talked about it. It uh, was really devastating. The hospitals were overloaded, and the stock market was crashing, and stores mm. were closing. Uh, the city was shut down, and you know you could hit a hit a golf ball or shoot a cannon down Madison Avenue and uh, or Lexington, where Bloomberg Studios are, and not hit anyone or anything. There wasn't a, a car or truck on the road. There wasn't a person in the street. So I think we've come a long, long way. I agree with uh, President Biden that uh, hope really does seem brighter. And I agree. I think by July 4th, uh, a good majority of people will be vaccinated. Uh, Maybe we'll have those uh, COVID passports so people should feel free to, you know, be going to restaurants if they've been vaccinated and being in small groups. So I think we've made a lot of progress. A little concern about the variants. I I think there is still a small chance of uh, of another wave, but uh, I think we're making progress. I am just a little concerned because I still see in some patients some vaccine hesitancy, mm. which worries me. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, is there a pattern emerging that you're seeing? You know, I think uh, it's very variable. Uh, a lot of the physicians have had it, and I think um, to some degree there may be some socioeconomic uh, issues. I think there are some people who are afraid of the vaccine or afraid of side effects and every time on the news we hear now a little bit about the AstraZeneca vaccine and in Europe and here with you know some potential blood clots but what I tell patients for all of these vaccines take whatever is available there's not one that's materially better than the other J&J certainly convenient with one vaccine but whenever you're vaccinating millions or hundreds of millions of people 
there will always be reports about, you know, death or an allergic reaction or a blood clot. Very hard to tease that out because when you're vaccinating a lot of people, someone along the way is going to have a complication that's unrelated to the vaccine. It just happens to be a day or two or three after they got a vaccine. People die. People get clots. Other things happen. So we do need to look into it. I mean, there may be something there. But overall, it seems the vaccines have been very safe, very effective. Uh, and I think we need to push on ahead with it. What about, though, and Tim, what was the data you just were sharing with me about, is it New York City yeah, positivity New York City, rates? So Mayor de Blasio tweeting this out earlier today, 6.31% uh, positivity rate for a seven-day average. I mean, compared to January, that's pretty good. But compared to last fall and, and over the summer, that's not a good number. It's not a great number. Um, and again, positivity doesn't, that's positive tests, doesn't necessarily mean hospitals are overloaded. They're not. There's a very stable number. Also, it doesn't necessarily mean kids should not be going back to school. Right. I think they should. And a lot of this is arbitrary. If it's 3% or 5% or 6% positivity, you know, we need to get kids back in school. We need to get all the teachers vaccinated. There's really no, no reason not to do that. The restaurants are starting to open up. I, I would certainly say, uh, you know, when you go flying these days, the planes are full. You don't know who's been vaccinated. Certainly, I think people who have been vaccinated um, should really be able to get priority for some of these things like restaurants. You know, if you show your card, you know, there should be very little hesitancy about uh, going in and sitting down. That, that's my sense. But I agree. The numbers are slightly um, up a bit. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that's translating into hospitalizations. In other words, more people may be having it, and probably many of them are being treated, and let's talk about this maybe in the next segment, with some of the IV monoclonal antibodies, mm -hmm. which work very well. Dr. Lespader, we're monitoring uh, the president expected to make comments any moment. We might have to tear away from this conversation. Having said that, there's money in that massive COVID relief, COVID stimulus uh, package that includes money for states to deal with the costs of COVID. Um, how do you think that might help some of the, 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 the problems that we've seen in terms of the vaccine rollout? Well, I think there are a number of problems. One is certainly for uh, states that have spent a lot of money on hospitals, as we have here in the tri-state area, that will certainly be helpful. You always have to think about the back end of printing all that money, what the consequences are. That's a different story. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to COVID, we really have to encourage everyone to get vaccinated. I agree totally with taking away any restrictions. You know, anyone over 18 really should have it. And why? Because the longer it takes to get to herd immunity, the more likely you're going to have viral replication and resistant variants. So the idea is to try to get as many people vaccinated as soon as possible, and that will really prevent these uh, potentially resistant uh, mutations from occurring. Dr. Lesbader, so we, yo, go ahead. Mm -hmm. So we need to do that, you know, as soon as possible. Now, we are seeing some patients who are getting COVID, sometimes in between their first and second vaccine. They do have to be careful. And we have some very uh, interesting new uh, uh, treatments. For example, if you have um, COVID and you're in any one of the risk groups, diabetes, high blood pressure, etc., we can give you an IV monoclonal antibody. You come into the hospital, you get one infusion, takes 20, 30 minutes, very effective. That's made by Lilly. 
we're working on some medications. Mark, uh, uh, malnupravir uh, is very effective at viral replication. So we definitely have treatment options, but the best, of course, is to get those vaccines in. And uh, we, our capacity to give vaccines really exceeds the availability. So that's the limiting supply at the time. I'm really glad you brought up treatment because that's exactly where I wanted to go with my, my next question. How have you seen treatment change throughout the pandemic where we were a year ago? And do we get to a point where because we are going to be living with this, it's unlikely we're going to eradicate it, that it becomes just in general treatable if somebody comes down with it? Well, uh, absolutely. So we talked about sort of the ideal medication like Tamiflu, also Tamiflu, yeah. for, the, for influenza or, or some of the intranasal sprays. Now Merck with Ridgeback Pharmaceuticals is working on a phase two, three on uh, an oral antiviral that seems to be very effective. Originally it was being looked at for flu, but it seems very effective for coronavirus. So that's exciting. And some preliminary studies with about 180 patients do show that it's highly effective. So I think we are close to an oral medication, which would be revolutionary. Still, get your flu shot, get your COVID shot. So that that's great. And we have an IV uh, monoclonal antibody that I've sent a number of patients for. They, they, they're symptomatic. They get a positive swab. They call. I call, uh, you know, NYU, for example, and this is available in many medical centers. Uh, it's called Bamlamivumab, which is great, made by Lilly, an IV and monoclonal uh, antibody cocktail. And patients often feel better much sooner and prevents hospitalizations. So we definitely have better options. Um, as opposed to a year ago, as Carol talked about, where people would be overwhelming the hospitals, and we were guessing at things like steroids and remdesivir and, you know, a whole host of things. So I think we've made a lot of progress, which is encouraging. Yeah, I feel like we've talked about all of those things. Hey, one thing, going back to what the president said, and again, we're monitoring for when he steps up uh, to the podium at the White House and begins talking uh, again. Uh, I just wonder, the variants, uh, and you talked about a possible peak again, could that throw off our return? to normalcy by summer, in your view? I think that's the only thing that could derail a recovery. And it is a possibility, and I don't think we're out of the woods yet. But again, I think getting everyone vaccinated, because at this point, the vaccines do seem to have some efficacy against the variants. So I would say let's get as many people vaccinated as possible as soon as possible. But if we don't, Absolutely, that could derail things with a flare of a resistant variant. That would really set us back and would be uh, uh, both an economic and, I think, psychologic shock. Mm. But so far, the variants haven't shown to be resistant to the vaccines, right? Exactly right. That's why I think it's important to, to move ahead, to reassure people about vaccine hesitancy. People see in the news the you know reports from both on the Internet and elsewhere about uh, potential complications, clots, etc. There's no data that any of these things are, are significant or serious. They have to be looked into. And I think people should stop looking for excuses not to go. Come on in. Let's open it up to everyone. Uh, and that's really the only way we will be able to put this behind us and have a relatively normal summer, which I think we should at the rate we are going. How key is that? Alaska already opening up eligibility to all adults. New York City expected to do so by late April or early May. Um, how crucial is it that all states do that pretty quickly in order for us to really get uh, and meet those targets by the president? 
I think it's key. I have so many people under age 65 or 60 who are saying, when can I get it? I would love to get it. And yeah. unfortunately, regulations say no. Uh, some of them have medical issues, and then we're able to get them online at the Javits Center and other vaccination centers. But many are otherwise healthy, but uh, they won't be uh, unless they get vaccinated. So I think we need to get those vaccines from the government, you know, from manufacturing to the government, to the states, and for the states to then distribute it to those vaccine centers so we can really get people in and out. And uh, the more people that are vaccinated and do well, the less vaccine hesitancy, because then everyone knows people who've had a vaccine and did fine, and then they're less afraid to go. Where are we now when it comes to vaccines and kids? Because if we do get to the point where everybody who's 16 or 18 and over can get the vaccine, that still leaves a very large number of people in the U.S. who are under that age and won't be able to get the vaccine. Great question. One of my patients asked me that question just earlier today about their kid who was under 18. The reason that we went for the older age group was because that was the group that had the highest complications, the highest death rate. Uh, older age and, symptom, uh, and uh, conditions such as obesity, hypertension, COPD. Most of the kids below 18, death rates and complications were very, very low. So the feeling was, look, in a worst case, if they get that, you know, they should have minimal post-COVID syndrome. Uh, most are not long haulers. Some have lost their smell, but most bounce back well. Nevertheless, they're a reservoir of virus, so you're exactly right. Ultimately, we should uh, vaccinate everyone. The studies, the viral studies, did not really look at that group, so we can't, we can't really report on the safety data, but I think that group should be included, and we do need to, uh, to broaden out that. But certainly the highest risk groups are above 18. But you're exactly right. Unless you eventually vaccinate kind of potential reservoirs, it's going to be harder to really eradicate uh, these quiet pools of the virus. So I agree. Eventually, it's going to have to be opened up to everyone. And I think that will be done probably sometime after the summer. I do wonder, too, any country's um, strategy in getting ahead of COVID, it's not just thinking about your nation, but it's thinking about the world, right? Because there's no real clear borders when it comes to the virus. Uh, and major developed countries need to think about making sure that there are vaccines for uh, those emerging economies, those who maybe don't have such quick access uh, to vaccines. You're exactly right. That yes, we definitely need to get our country vaccinated. That will be protective. But unless the world gets immunized, you will have these pockets in isolated areas that could, could potentially uh, have that, uh, viral replication and mutations, which could be resistant. So yes, this, like smallpox, really has to be a worldwide effort. Uh, and I think we did it with smallpox. We should be able to do it with COVID. Uh, but it is taking a bit of time. Nevertheless, Less, you know, I, we've come, uh, come a tremendous distance in one year. Really amazing from no vaccine and very few treatments. Uh, we still have a long way to go, but I think we've made great progress. And you're right, it has to be a global effort. Hey, what does that mean for the development of vaccine in the future? We were able to do this so quickly. I say we as if I had any part to do with it. No, I had nothing to do with it. The doctors, the scientists, the healthcare professionals, and I certainly appreciate them. But what does it mean for how quickly we were able to do this? Does this bode, you know, bode well for treatment of cancer and, and, and other viruses? 
Absolutely. You know, the messenger RNA technique, which is the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, not that the other ones are not very effective. They use a different uh, technique with a, with a viral vector, right. uh, uh, other approaches. But the mRNA that can be tweaked, I think, is amazing. And I think that uh, technique... Ian, just quickly, because we're going to have to go to the president, just quick wrap up. Huge. Great potential, Tim. Great potential. All right. Have for, a great weekend, guys. For, forgive us, forgive us. Uh, Ian Lasbader, thank you so much. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So here we are one year later. Uh, yes, progress since the outbreak. And yet the U.S. is still charting the long way back to normal, Tim. Yeah. And, and charts are the theme of the day or the theme of the piece when it comes to Olivia Rockman and colleagues' latest piece on the U.S. economy and the aftermath of the surges. I won't say the aftermath of the pandemic by any means, but where we are in the recovery. She's Bloomberg News U.S. economy reporter, joins us on the phone from New York City. It is so hard for me, Olivia, to choose one single chart from this to Hmm. focus on. So I'm going to ask you to do the hard work here. What is one chart in your piece that tells the story of the recovery from a year ago? And for our radio folks, we're going to post it so you get a little bit of a visual as well. And check it out on YouTube because some of these these charts will come up. Hi, thanks for having me. In terms of the charts that we covered, I think the jobs market is maybe the most important given that it's the one that still has the most progress to be had. Uh, last year, we lost about 22 million jobs in March and April, and we're still only halfway back to recovering those. And that's, of course, a metric that's looked at closely by both the Treasury and Fed Chair Powell. And so it's going to continue to be a huge conversation going into the rest of this year. OK, so I can explain this chart for and, and do it, try to do it justice because we're, we're talking on the radio here. But it shows an absolute jump in unemployment when the pandemic was declared. Uh, all the way up to a whopping 22.9% and then coming down to uh, just about 11.1%. Uh, this is the, the the U.S. rate of unemployment and underemployment, so different than um, the headline figures that we see. Uh, what else were, were you focusing on when you think about the recovery here? What are some important metrics that we need to keep in mind? And, and, and also explain a little bit, because the, there's been this disconnect, a huge disconnect between Wall Street and, and Main Street. Right. So looking at the flip side of the the jobs sector of the economy, housing, on the other hand, has been extremely strong thanks to low borrowing rates. And so we see that existing home sales and new home sales, as well as just mortgage refinancing, is skyrocketing and has been extremely strong. Now, to your point about this K-shaped recovery that we often talk about, evictions are up massively um, in the last year. And That's mostly because renters, as opposed to homeowners, are having a really hard time. And again, many of the renters are people that have lost their jobs. Well, and another chart, I mean, listen, it all goes back to, yeah, I think the jobs one is such a big one. But you do break it down. Restaurants and bars. Listen, Olivia, we have talked about that so much over the past 12 uh, 12 months. Talked to a lot of the well-known chefs here in the New York metro area. I mean, they were just shut down. And you guys have a chart on that. Yeah, that's right. So restaurants actually have been, you know, kind of stagnant since the initial reopenings in the summer. That said, many economists are optimistic that restaurant sales will bounce back quickly, especially in the next couple of months as the weather warms and vaccinations pick up. Um, but on the other hand, we have these COVID variants that remain a risk 
as well as just consumer confidence in terms of their health concerns about going out. So one of the charts in here that I think could be familiar to a lot of people who've been following this story is the the one that shows the rich getting absolutely so much richer during this pandemic. When the pandemic was declared, the, the wealth, the net worth of the world's 100 wealthiest people uh, absolutely jumped in the last year up to $2.7 trillion from just about $1.6 trillion last March. What's the story there? Well, we've seen in the stock market that the you know stocks that have performed extremely well are in the tech industry, and you know many of the wealthiest people are either CEOs of those companies or have stakes in those companies, and so they've done extremely well. Right. Now, on the other hand, the services sector has been extremely hard hit, and so that's why we see you know this extreme amount of job loss and and poverty elsewhere. Yeah, listen, these are charts that tell the story of the past year. Uh, and I just put it up on Twitter if folks want to get a little bit of a deeper dive into it and uh, check it out. Olivia, thank you so much. Olivia Rockman, she's Bloomberg News U.S. economy reporter on the phone in New York City. But, you know, when you break it down, Tim, this tells so much. It does. I mean, it's a tale of, of two different economies. Absolutely. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just got about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. And Charlie was breaking down some of those uh, equity numbers. We are just about at our highs of the session after some selling earlier on, up about 301 points on the Dow. The S&P up about mm, just about three, call it flat. Uh, NASDAQ still lower, but definitely off its lows of the session. What a week it has been. Let's get into it with uh, Nancy Pryle. She's co-CEO and senior portfolio manager at Essex. Essex Investment Management with us on the phone from Chicago. Nancy, good to have you here. Uh, how are you? And what do you make kind of of the trade this week? Because there's been volatility, and yet we're ending up with some pretty uh, decent gains for the overall equity markets. Exactly. Well, we are seeing a much increased level of volatility, although still, you know, not crazy, based on both the very sharp rise that we've seen in interest rates as well as what we think is a rotation away from many of the names that were big winners last year, the work-from-home, shelter-in-place names, into those types of stocks and names that are more exposed to the incredible cyclical recovery that we are starting to see the economy enter into. And I think the strength that we're seeing today in particular is really reflecting the stimulus that's coming with the signing of the $1.9 trillion package, that is 10% of U.S. GDP that's going to be added to this economy to further drive revenue and earnings growth, as well as jobs and wages. Well, but do you think, you know, it's interesting, or Dave Wilson earlier talked about um, Bank of America, had some research out too, that compared the S&P uh, cyclical stocks with defensive shares, um, which are, of course, relatively unaffected by economic swings, and whether or not we're starting to see maybe the cyclical stocks maybe have kind of run their course because they've had quite a bounce back off their lows already. Um, how does that factor into what you just said, though? 
Well, we think that although the cyclical stocks have had a big run, and this isn't blanket on all cyclical stocks or all growth stocks, but if you look at where the revenue growth and earnings growth is going to be the greatest over the next couple of quarters, where the margin expansion possibilities and therefore the the opportunity for significant earnings surprises, as well as where the ownership lies in these stocks, cyclicals, more value-oriented stocks, and smaller cap, cap stocks in general are still very under-owned broadly compared to the large-cap NASDAQ 100 or the large-cap FANG stocks that have been driving the averages over really the last 10 years. So we still think there is significant room to go that this first six months of outperformance is just setting the stage for what could be um, a multi-year period, frankly, of outperformance. So, Nancy, talk to us about some of the stocks that you like. So what we like to do is find companies that have secular growth trends, big total available markets, but we want to find companies that are benefiting from those growth trends in a way that has not yet been fully recognized in the price of the stock. What that means is sometimes we'll find suppliers into a growth industry as opposed to investing in the name brand players. So everybody knows about Tesla and EVs. We particularly like a company called Vistion, the ticker is VC, which is an automobile equipment supplier. They sell um, heads-up displays that are an important part of both autonomous driving as well as infotainment systems. GM is a big customer of theirs, and they will be integrated into GM's new autonomous EV vehicles that they're about to come out with. And as we know, GM has said their entire fleet is going to go EV by 2030 or thereabouts. So that's the kind of name that we think is very exciting. Hey, wait, wait, wait. They've been on a tear. They were on a tear certainly last year, big bounce back, uh, and even the year before, uh, up 45% in 2020, up about 43% in 2019. Uh, Valuations or anything, everything feels comfortable to you? We think so, yeah. We think we are very early in, first of all, we're very early in the use of technology and the changing of technology in automobiles. We know what the automobile companies have been saying about the shortage of semiconductors. This is really disruptive. And so the stock does not look particularly cheap on this year's earnings. We think this year's earnings are probably low. But if you look out a couple of years, the stock is very cheap. We, We think it could potentially double from here over the next couple of years as they continue to gain penetration. And importantly, as other players in the EV market gain market share. So let's talk a little bit about about the cloud and, and digital transformation. Mm-hmm. Domo is a company that is on your list yep. as well. Um, why are you excited about Domo? So we really like Domo here. They actually just announced their quarter last night. It was a very strong quarter. They beat, they raised, growth accelerated, particularly their what they call ARR, which is annualized recurring revenue, which grew 28% in the quarter. Domo is a company that provides business analytics software. Now, there are a lot of players in that business. What we like about Domo is, one, they're moving from small, medium-sized business up to enterprise, and two, very importantly, their products are optimized for mobility, and they are designed so that it pushes the ability to use this business analytics software down to a much lower level. So it's not just the specialist software, 
it's really a software that generalists can use as well to do the data analysis and business intelligence work that is so important to companies today. This is a part of technology spending that was actually under some pressure last year right. during the pandemic and is now starting to come on very strong. So the stock is about seven times revenue, maybe not cheap on an absolute basis, but extraordinarily cheap compared to other high-value, right. um, high-recurring revenue software companies. And we're seeing you know, pretty tremendous earnings growth. It's not profitable, but is this a company? It's a pretty small market cap, uh, almost uh, just under $2 billion. Is this a, a takeout for an Oracle or somebody else, just quickly? So it could be, but we actually think that um, they have such a wide-open marketplace in their own right that, that this company can grow into a 10 or 15 or $20 billion market cap if they can keep the growth rate up. And so we'd prefer to see it not get taken out, but allow it to mature on its own. All right. All right. Going to leave it there. Hey, listen, have a good weekend, Nancy. Appreciate it. Nancy Pryle, she's co-chief executive officer and senior portfolio manager at Essex Investment Management, joining us on the phone from Chicago. That cloud space, I just feel like it's a million companies out there. Yeah, it is. And look, this is a small one with a relatively small market cap, especially when you think of the big players. Like, yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the ones who dominate the space like Amazon and more. Right. Which means maybe, and we know the cloud's growing, potential for incredible growth, like she says, but I do always wonder if there's that takeout play within it. Um, just got a few minutes left in the trading day. Yeah, and it's Friday. It's Friday. And we're going to end on an up note, so a bullish note, because those stocks are uh, going to pretty much end at their best levels of the session. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.